Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1275. Interview number 14 with Jim DiGemio and Paul Blow about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on December 9th of the year 2022. And once again, it is my pro- my pleasure and my privilege to bring back to our airwaves Jim DiGemio. And it is a special pleasure and special privilege to welcome also Paul Blow, another veteran academic and JFK assassin, assassination researcher whose work is featured in JFK Revisited. Jim Paul, welcome to our airwaves. Thank, Thank you very Jay. much. Thank you. Okay. Well, uh, let's get right into the uh, essence of the discussion. One of the things that is featured in JFK Revisited and something that we have spent some time on before, but I'd like to explore at greater length. And that concerns some of the other plots against JFK's life in the year 1963. There was a, a startling mention in the Washington Post of all publications uh, in the January 6th investigation that was mentioned that the Secret Service had destroyed records about previous plots on JFK's life in 1963, uh, mentioning white supremacists as the source of some of those plots. And then they referenced the Secret Service's destruction of records with regard to the January 6th insurrection. Uh, Paul, you have explored these other plots in 1963. So let's plunge right in and uh, take a look at how they relate to the plot on 11-22-63 that obviously went forward with the devastating results. Uh, someone named Lee, who might that have been, and what did he have to say about some things that were going on in Chicago in early November of 63? Yes, well, we're not certain who uh, the Lee is, but many suspect it may have been Lee Harvey Oswald, who was tipping off the FBI about a plot. Uh, uh, specifically, he talked about a number of Latinos who were headed up to Chicago with um, semi-automatic uh, weapons uh, with the goal of killing Kennedy. And... Um, I think the later that day, it was just a few days before uh, Kennedy was scheduled to be there. That would have been November 2nd. He was going to go and see a, a college football game. And he was supposed to arrive uh, in at O'Hare at around 11 a.m. And um, things were getting pretty hot because uh, the what actually happened is a landlady uh, also called the FBI and... Uh, said that in her boarding house or the room she was renting that uh, she saw four rifles with telescopic sights and a sketch of the uh, the motorcade route. And uh, what the FBI did is uh, re- they, they uh, simply referred this threat to the Secret Service. And uh, they completely botched the um, the surveillance. They were able to pick up two of the suspects uh, and they were just stonewalled. But, um, you know, when we talk about withholding evidence, uh, it's amazing that out of that operation, we don't even have the names or the pictures of the people they picked up. They were let go. Uh, so without being certain, um, there, there's some, you know, educated guessing that the Lee in question may have been Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, because Lee Harvey Oswald, the more people, uh, research, more research looked into what he was doing in New Orleans that year is that, um, the more people are convinced that he, he was, uh, he was an agent. He was a, an informant and he had an awful lot of knowledge of not only, uh, anti Castro groups, but also pro Castro groups. And uh, he was someone who was feeding his information, not just to Guy Bannister, 
but to people like Warren DeBries in, um, in New Orleans, who was actually the FBI agent in charge of overseeing, um, uh, you know, Cuban groups, including the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Uh, so, uh, at the same time, though, there was another suspect that was being talked about and being warned about a, a guy who had such resemblance to Oswald, a guy called Thomas Arthur Valley. And uh, he was so similar to Oswald. He, he he was somebody who had mental problems, but he was ex-military. He had um, he had been stationed also on a U-2 base in Japan. And um, he was given a mission at one point uh, of training these uh, these rabid uh, Cuban exiles, uh, you know, for guerrilla warfare. And we know that the the Cuban exiles were all organized, especially those who were involved in anti-Castro operations under the CIA. We know that Oswald had offered to do that to with Carlos Bringier, uh, you know, in New Orleans. He offered, and he may have uh, done some training at uh, Lake Pontchartrain, where there was an awful lot of training going on. So uh, over and above that similarity, we know how Oswald conveniently moved to uh, from New Orleans to uh, Dallas to end up being uh, in the Texas school book depository just at the right time. Well, kind of the same thing happened to uh, Thomas Arthur Valley. He had been in Long Island, and shortly before... Uh, the scheduled trip by uh, Kennedy to be in Chicago, he not, he ends up uh, being uh, given a job in a building that would have been on the motorcade route that um, that Kennedy took. And uh, one person who actually went to see the vista from that building was uh, uh, James Douglas, and he he said the vista from where Arthur, Arthur Valley was working at the time. Uh, compared to uh, the vista from uh, you know at Daly Plaza was so similar uh, that there would have been perfect opportunity for triangulation of fire. So James Douglas, by the way, was the author of JFK and the Unspeakable. So yeah. that's what we're talking about here. Yes, yeah, he a great book, and he did an awful lot of research in that case. But the key source was uh, uh, was uh, the 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 is it Arthur Black, Jim Black? No, it's Edwin Black. Edwin Black, that's right, for the Chicago Independent. And he wrote, uh, he's perhaps the person who did the most research, and that came out in a 1975 article. And so, and by the way, to, to really give Edwin Black his due, I'm very, very skeptical that this story would have come out if it wasn't for him. Yeah. Because there were only people who knew bits and pieces of it, but Edwin Black spent like nine or ten months investigating right. the story, okay, like a very good investigator. He just wouldn't let it go, all right? And then he came out with this special issue of his alternative magazine called Chicago Independent, and I think the story is like 26 pages or something, okay, <laughs> inside that tabloid-sized journal, all right? And mm-hmm. and he he really, this guy really mm. investigated this case this whole thing and uh he he said that he was being followed by military intelligence towards the end okay you know and so uh him and his wife put out this journal you know and you know the old style 1970s kind of alternative media thing all right uh, and uh and this is what really for the first time really brought this story to the forefront. And like as Paul says, it's not just important because it appears to have been an attempted plot on Kennedy's life. I believe it's really important because of the parallels between Chicago and Dallas. Okay. And then when we get to Tampa, we'll see a parallel there. See, this is what I mean. I, Kennedy was not getting out of 1963 alive. Okay, that's the bottom line. He wasn't getting out of 63 alive. They were going to get him one place or the other. 
Uh, Jim, I have a quick question. Uh, was that Edwin Black the same Edwin Black who published IBM and the Holocaust? Yes. Okay, very good. Excellent. Now I know uh, uh, who we're speaking of here. Uh, it, one of the things that I was struck by, these are the Chicago plot, and that is the, well, superficially the elements of what we are to believe was incompetence. You know, it's the, the whoopsie-daisy theory of history. Uh-oh, it broke. Here are four apparent marksmen with the motorcade boot of the president of the U.S., semi-automatic rifles with telescopic sights, and the Secret Service lets two of them go, and mm-hmm. the plot itself uh, seems to vanish into thin air. And that in and of itself just doesn't seem credible to me. You're absolutely right. Um, other element that was really important that came from Abraham Bolden Abraham Bolden uh, described how the Secret Service chief of Chicago, uh, Maurice Martineau, uh, took major steps to control messaging. They didn't want this getting out, and they didn't want it to even go to forward teams for um, for other motorcade routes. So, uh, you know, uh, he, they said they didn't want anything in writing. I'm talking about uh, uh, James Rowley and uh, Martineau. Um, and it, it, in other words, they didn't want to have any connection between Chicago and what would later happen. And uh, this probably had people with their guard down in future uh, motorcade routes, and including the media and including um, uh, Kennedy's inner circle. So uh, another interesting thing about this is the person who arrested uh, Valet, Valet wasn't picked up until the morning of the motorcade and only after it was canceled. So he then he's picked up uh, by a guy called Dan Groth. And Dan Groth uh, later gained infamy because he was part of the SWAT team that assassinated uh, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark in 1969. Um, the thing with him is that he he never had regular police assignments, but he, he was always in uh, counterintelligence. And his early focus was on the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. So though in the case of Valet, we didn't see the links with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee that's kind of interesting that uh, that the arresting officer, you kind of wonder what kind of flyers he may have ended up in his apartment <laughs> had he gone down uh, for this. I mean, that's just speculative. But, uh, yeah, that's that's. And then, uh, of course, what happened to Abraham Bolden is a year later when he tried to say what he knew to the um, the uh, Warren Commission. The poor guy was railroaded into into jail. I think he did six years in jail. He came close to getting, you know, tangled into psychiatric treatment, which would have just, you know, probably, you know, completely, I don't know, they would have probably messed around with his brain or something. Uh, but, um, you know, so, so what happened to Abraham Bolden is very, it, 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 it's similar to what happened to Roger Craig, right? Uh, Roger Craig, who tried to say what he knew, uh, with what he saw in Dallas. And, uh, yeah, the whole, uh, the whole thing is, uh, it's extremely suspicious. But what, what, what happens, I think, Dave, when you, you, you line up and we'll see this later, at the whole point of the article about the prior plots, I only spoke about two, uh, in the documentary, but there were many more. And, what you see is a template, a template that, uh, you know, where you could have had uh, a patsy. And in many cases, in, in especially other cases that will describe that you could have blamed Castro and that the U.S. would have had its excuse to to invade uh, the island. Uh, uh, of course, we know that LBJ eventually went the lone nut route. But there, there are many hints that the plan A was to blame the assassination on, uh, you know, a Castro uh, assassin link. Uh, we've seen how uh, Thomas Arthur Valet 
was a former Marine like Oswald, was stationed at bases that were involved with the UQ project like Oswald, was training anti-Castro Cubans. We'll come back to Oswald and his New Orleans activities, but he certainly appears to have done some of the same. And there were four apparent anti-Castro Cubans with telescopic rifles, uh, telescopic sighted rifles, and the plans for the motorcade. And yet, you know, it, it, it's just what may worry uh, material. <clears throat> uh, uh, Paul, you mentioned uh, Abraham Bolden, and we've spoken about him in, in the past as well. In the documentary, Jim Goshenauer, a grad student at the time, mentions what Elmer Moore a Secret Service agent whom we have uh, in the past seen putting pressure on Malcolm Perry to change his opinion about the neck wound uh, in JFK's Bobby. But uh, uh, Elmer Moore also cropped up in connection with some choice comments he made about uh, Abraham Bolden. Uh, tell us about that, Paul. Well, you know what? I think um, Jim, uh, Jim has very good information because I, I – you, you of course, uh, uh, talked to Gotchnauer directly. I, I exchanged with him once over the phone. Uh, let me just may, maybe just start off by saying that Abraham Bolden, um, Jim, was he the first um, uh, black Secret Service person? I believe to, so. To save on the, the detail, right, on the presidential yeah, on, on, yeah. on the detail, the presidential detail. And and he was handpicked by Kennedy. Yes. Uh, yeah. And he, he was handpicked. There's a, quite a story that goes into how he was actually, uh, you know, recruited. That was that was pure affirmative action. Yeah. Okay. That was pure affirmative action. Kennedy wanted an African American because everybody was white, and so he picked Bolden. It's <laughs> well, well, I think Jim, you you prefer telling the Gotchnauer? I found it really compelling. But I don't want to miss any details. To give you a little background, Jim Gochenauer got to know Elmer Moore back in the 1960s when he was a student in college, okay? And he needed some information about a project he was working on for his student teaching thing. So they put him in touch with Moore. And as they communicated, they understood that they had this common field of curiosity which was the JFK assassination and so they met I think twice they talked on the telephone several times and at one meeting Gochenauer uh, they were talking about the files of the Chicago plot and Elmer Moore said I really don't didn't see those because they wouldn't let me see them. Okay, all right, and he's and and I you know like sort of uh, Gochenauer said what what the uh, Groucho Marx used to call the secret word. Okay, well he said, well what about Abraham Bolden and and more just flipped out. Okay, you know, and he and he stood up. And he placed his revolver on the table, okay? And he said, words to the effect, tell me right now, Jim, who are you working for? And Gochenauer could barely untie his tongue, and he said, well, I'm not working for anybody. I'm just an independent researcher, okay? And so Moore was evidently assured by that, okay? And... He said later, we got that nigger, didn't we? And he said, you? And Moore said, no, not me. The Inspector General, Kelly, got got him. All right? And so that uh, that is an incredible story for in a lot of different ways, okay? Because it shows you how determined the Secret Service was that they were not going to let anything out about the Chicago plot, which makes you wonder why. Why why was there this giant cover-up? Because, as Paul said, there are so many parallels between Chicago and what happened in Dallas. 
if the information would have been sent to Dallas, if everything they knew would have been sent to Dallas, okay, I believe the assassination might have been thwarted because they were just so similar, so, so similar in their design. You know, you've, you've got the, okay, you've got number one, you've got this tall building. Okay. All right. You on, on the motorcade route. Okay. Then you coming off the exit ramp. Okay. You know, and you have this former Marine who's working in that tall building. Okay. I think these guys could put the dots together. All right. You know, so I believe that if there wouldn't have been a cover up, that it's very possible that the assassination wouldn't have, wouldn't have gone off. And the very fact that Elmer Moore went crazy. Okay. Oh. When, when, when all he did was mention Bolden's name. Oh, by the way, in Canada, when we were doing this wonderful tour up in Quebec, which is Paul's hometown. Okay. Uh, well, go ahead. Tell him what happened with Bolden. Oh, oh, that was amazing. It, it was a highlight. Um, uh, you know, our, our colleague, uh, Leno Sanek, I said, we were thinking that maybe we could get, uh, Abraham to come to Quebec City. And, you know, for all sorts of reasons, that wasn't possible. Uh, but, uh, Len was able to put together a, a, a short video of Abraham thanking Oliver Stone for the documentary. And what he thought was its impact on uh, Abraham getting his pardon last winter. And um, uh, I mean, uh, it was, you know, we actually were having a panel discussion, Jim, Oliver, myself. And uh, before the end, uh, we were able to put that video on and Oliver didn't see it coming. And all of a sudden, he sees Abraham Bolden on the screen uh, thanking him profusely and saying that he really believed uh, the uh, destiny betrayed had an influence on him getting a pardon. And uh, Oliver uh, was really touched by that because after uh, the, the uh, presentation, he says, Paul, how was that put together? And I explained it to him and, <laughs> and he says, can you send me a copy? And, uh, I have to say, I think, uh, Jimmy was quite touched by that, wasn't he? Yes. Yes, he was. It was a very nice thing to put together between oh, yeah. Paul and Leno Sanic. Okay. Uh, and by the way, the day the pardon came down from Biden, uh, one of his lawyers left a message for me. Okay. Thanking me for everything we had done. You know, and I guess they really think that Oliver and the film, you know, had an impact on Biden doing what, you know, what, what he did. The, the whole Abraham Bolden story is so bad. I mean, it's so dirty, you know, uh, that it really shows you just how mired in muck the JFK case really is. You know, I mean, it's so. Something I think that needs to be borne in mind in connection with the discussion, not only of the Chicago plot, Abraham Bolden, Elmer Moore's reaction, which I think is very telling, but also when we get to tap on some of the, of the other things, uh, Peter Bale Scott has noted that, quote, the cover-up will obviate the conspiracy, unquote. And when one looks at the, not only the extraordinary similarities between Thomas Arthur Valley and Oswald, Marine, U2, training Castro, and so forth, and training anti-Castro Cubans, but when you look at the response on the part of the federal authorities, if, if someone in the audience was stalking president of the U.S. with rifles and telescopic sights, and a map of his motorcade route, you would not be handled the way they were handled. Uh, it is simply not credible that this was business as usual. And when one expands the context to some of the other plots on JFK's life, I think they take on not only a life of their own, but I think they help to illustrate the uh, gathering 
storm, which then broke in Dallas on 11 Uh The Tampa plot, uh, tell us about that and some of the similarities there. Yeah, well, that's one is uh, really interesting. It doesn't get as much attention from the researchers uh, that the the um, Chicago plot does, but the reason it's worthy of uh, an awful lot of uh, of interest is because of um, one key element. Uh, first of all, let's let's start off by saying that um, Kennedy did a motorcade in Tampa on November eighteenth. 1963. And it was the longest motorcade I think ever done. I think it was some 70 kilometers of all things. Uh, but, um, they were really worried. There were an awful lot of threats, uh, around Tampa and they were really afraid of the Floridian Hotel. Now, one of the people that, uh, came to the surface after the assassination as someone who had been extremely suspicious and by the way, the, the reason this one is interesting is it's perhaps the plot that the House Select Committee on Assassination talks the most about. So this isn't just, a, you know, a, a journalist or a, a writer or a researcher or an independent. Uh, you know, if they're going to call somebody a conspiracy theorist, they'll have to refer to HSCA investigators in this case. But uh, basically... The thing with uh, the, the, the potential patsy in this case would have been a Cuban exile called Polycarpo Lopez. Now he, again, this, you know, before, not long before the uh, motorcade, he, what does he do? He comes up from the Keys to Tampa to be there at the right time. Um, the, the, what, happened with him is a few days before the assassination he met at least twice with uh, members of Fair Play for Cuba committee one time on November 17th and sometime before that then what came out was that he was loaned money by the Fair Play for Cuba committee $190 for him to, to pay for his travels to go to Cuba The way he went to Cuba is particularly fascinating because uh, he he attended another meeting on November 20th. And then uh, anyway, he gets his loan and uh, somewhere, I mean, I'm trying to get the exact uh, date that this happened, but it it was in and around the assassination. He makes it to uh, Mexico by foot through Laredo which was the point of entry supposedly that Oswald took. And next thing you know, he he finds himself as a lone passenger on a plane uh, to Cuba. Now, uh, there, there had been also some, some signals, you know, that had come out uh, after the assassination uh, that, that, you know, we're, we're warning the FBI. They said, Hey, there, we've got a suspicious person here who may have been in contact with Oswald of all things. Now, uh, what I hadn't written about originally, Jim, and this came out later is to tie all this together is one of the people that Oswald had the most correspondence with, with the Fair Play for Cuba committee was its leader at the time, a guy called Vincent T. Lee. Vincent T. Lee earlier had been in charge of the FPCC Tampa chapter. Well, I found some um, some articles that shows that uh, at around that time, at around the, the, the time of November 17th, um, is the time that Vincent T. Lee also was in Tampa attending a Fair Play for Cuba committee meeting where he showed videos of his trips to Cuba and Polycarpo Lopez was there. Now, that perhaps started tying Vincent T. Lee together with Lopez and Oswald. Anyway, to to make matters worse is, in this case, the fact that this wasn't even brought up by the Warren Commission, not even looked into uh, even the HSCA found it to be egregious. The term they used was that, you know, they, they just, uh, I mean, uh, let me quote from them. Lopez's association with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, however, coupled with the fact 
that the dates of his travels to Mexico via Texas coincide with the assassination, plus the reports that Lopez's activities were suspicious, all amount to troublesome, troublesome circumstances that the committee was enabled to resolve with confidence. Now, uh, before we go on to a few other things, the key here is this got me going into a huge amount of investigation into the Fair Play for Cuba committee. But maybe we just want to discuss, uh, I don't know if you have any questions about the Tampa plot, but uh, as Jim was saying, is as the year was progressing, uh, the number of plans and plots was multiplying and intensifying because there's a, there's are hints of another plot that took place in San Antonio on November 21st. Uh, there were, there, there are others too that I can talk about and I will a little later when we, we get into the Fair Play for Cuba committee because that to me is, I don't want to, I mean, that to me is the fingerprint of a, um, of a template. Because if you look at, we'll tie this into Richard Case Nigel and Vaughn Marlow. Uh, who, uh, are very linked to the Fair Play for Cuba committee and, uh, where there were potential attempts to kill Kennedy also. Uh, since, uh, uh, Castro was said to have financed, I mean, they really got out of their way to, to make the case that, uh, Castro had provided some of the financing for the Fair Play for Cuba committee early on. Then the, the, the argument was Castro, as the House on Un-American Activities called the FPCC, that his network in the U.S. was involved in the Kennedy assassination. And that was the headline that some of the planners were hoping for. In, in uh, the Champa plot, as Paul noted, JFK ended up calling off the trip to Chicago. According to Vince Palomero, who specializes in the Secret Service, he was determined that was not going to happen in Tampa, that he was going to go ahead and do it, even though it was a 27-mile <laughs> a 27-mile motorcade. All right? Yeah. And so he did. He went down there. He went through the whole 27 miles, and... By the time he got to the Floridian Hotel, the place was flooded with law, you know, law enforcement officers. You name it, they were there. The Secret Service, the police, okay, the FBI, et cetera. And Kennedy insisted on congratulating every single person that was in the building at that time, shaking hands with them and telling them how thankful he was <laughs> that he was protected. Okay, you know, sort of like, hey, they didn't get me this time. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. They're trying, but they didn't do it this time. <laughs> Again, moving a little bit back, Gilberto Policarpo Lopez was also affiliated with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Oswald was its sole New Orleans member and uh, we saw some of the same elements uh, as featured in the uh, Oswald scenario cropping up in Chicago as well. Uh, Mr. Lopez then uh, decamps to Cuba on 11-22-63. There are rumors that he may have assisted Oswald, and the House Select Committee on Assassinations was furious over the Warren Commission's neglect of the Tampa plot. Uh, Okay, I mean, can, Dave, 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 can you yeah. just, just, just imagine if they would have decided to go with Gilberto Lopez, how could you get any better? It's a guy who's in the Fair Play for Cuba committee. He's in the same town with the leader of the Fair Play for Cuba committee the night before uh, the mm-hmm. Tampa motorcade. He yeah. then goes to Texas departs from Laredo, which is the town where Oswald left to go to Mexico City. He then goes to Mexico City, and he's the sole passenger on a Cubana Airlines flight to Cuba. How could you get any better than that? You know, really, 
I mean, go ahead, do the check marking. You know, there would have there would have been a war with Cuba. I don't I don't doubt that at all. If this would have been the case, if they decided to go with them, you know. Yeah. And by the way, Fidel Castro was if you, I'm sure Dave's Dave, have you read his November 27th speech? Castro's November 27th speech. If you if you haven't, we have it on our website. He was supposed to be addressing a college crowd, okay, on some elements of economics, but he said he was so disturbed by thinking about what happened to John F. Kennedy and how they pulled it off that he decided to just drop the subject and he started talking about the Kennedy assassination. And this went on like for 40 minutes. He, he's a very, very smart analysis. And one of the things he brought up, okay, was the thing about how Oswald was almost, you know, made up from paper mache to go ahead and be the fall guy, you know, in, in, in a plot to kill Kennedy in order to go ahead and some, and he mentioned this stuff about Mexico City. Okay. His, his leafleting in, uh, New Orleans, a southern town in the summer of 1963, the so-called fair play for Cuba committee of which he's the only member and all this stuff. And he says, I, I, he's words the effect, you know, clearly the capitalists in the United States designed this to invade <laughs> Cuba. Okay. You know, for whatever reason that didn't happen. Okay. But if you, it has all the earmarks on a, of a plot because, and then he even said, see, Kennedy, he called him, see, Kennedy was not part of the right wing militants. You know, he said Kennedy was more of a centrist. Okay. You know, and so they figured they had to get rid of him, you know, in order to launch an invasion. A very, very smart analysis. Nobody ever said Fidel Castro was stupid. You know, it's one and thing. At the time of him. the assassination, at the exact moment that Castro heard that JFK had been shot, he was meeting with one of two members of a backdoor diplomatic channel, a French journalist named Jean Daniel. I believe Lisa Howard was another one, and uh, also uh, the... Uh, was it William Atwood, the ambassador? Uh, so that at the very time that JFK was killed, he was working out a backdoor diplomatic rapprochement with Fidel Castro. And Lee Harvey Oswald, as we have seen, was the sole member of the New Orleans chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. And, and the FPCC, was also uh, an element of the uh, CD of Mr. Policarpo Lopez as well. Yes. And uh, and remember he, what remember what Castro said. Okay. I said mala noticia. I said mala noticia, and then I think he said that uh, Cuba would be blind to the assassination. Yes. Yes. And he and he said this is this is bad news. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. He 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 saw all the earmarks of one of these. Uh, you know, these scenarios that uh, only the CIA, people like Lansdale and Phillips think up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to blame an opponent. Because that's right out of ZR Rifle, the, the uh, Harvey assassination model, the executive action model called ZR Rifle is, how can you get a patsy that you can link with a foe? And uh, it's stated right there. So... um uh, no, really, uh, really interesting. And uh, again, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Once you, when you get into analyzing what it was back in '63, it, it, you can see right then and there that uh, that because uh, let me get a little bit. I don't want to go too fast unless Dave, you you want us to discuss tap a bit more. Would you like me to uh, to well, well, Paul, was, yeah. wasn't Sergio Arconcio Smith in Tampa? Didn't you talk? Uh, to- oh, yeah, yeah, he was there at one point. I don't know if he was at what date, but he he had been part of the Marty Park uh, uh, revolution uh, riot against right. the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Right. Yeah. Yes. You, you wrote about course, that in one of your yes, essays. Yes, yes, yeah. and of course, who does uh, 
who do people see uh, uh, Quiroga with? Hey, eh, right. I think it's at the coffee shop near Bannister's uh, Mancusos. Yes. Was it? Don't they see uh, Oswald with David Atley Smith, Quiroga, and a bunch of people? Uh, there's more than one witness to have seen uh, seen them together. Well, I don't uh, think he was ever seen with David David Phillips. Okay. No, no, no. Sorry, did I say David Phillips? I mean David. David uh, oh no, Sergio Acacia Smith. I meant. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sure. And yeah. David Lewis. Okay. I think yeah. you mean David Lewis. Okay. David yeah. Lewis was one of the witnesses. Yeah. Yeah. See, what I found so interesting about what Paul wrote is that Sergio Acacia Smith was yeah. in Tampa with obviously a provocation to discredit the Fair Play for Cuba committee in Tampa. All yes. right. Which I believe, and I think Dave, you probably believe, you know, also that this was what Oswald was doing in the summer of 1963. Well, no, no question about it. Uh, Jim, let me just fill in briefly. Sergio Acapulco Smith had been deeply involved with the anti-Castro Cuban exile movement. And at one point he had actually uh, secured the front in New Orleans for the uh, Cuban Revolutionary Council, I believe it was, yes. the CIA's umbrella yes. organization, to work yes. against Castro. And Sergio Acacio Smith was one of the people that Jim Garrison was trying to subpoena for yes. his right. right. And so this, to have him in Tampa is... You know, that, that's, uh, like that little Alka-Seltzer commercial. That's a summer species meatball. You know, it, it is, <laughs> it, it, it's quite remarkable. And, uh, the, the entire, really sort of the, the, uh, imbroglio around the Fair Play for Cuba committee and Bannister 531 Lafayette Place 544 Camp Street. This is obviously well known. The veteran researchers, we went into this at great length in, in uh, the 25 one hour series of interviews we yes. did back in 2018 and 2019. But I think in terms of pinning or focusing the discussion here, we should go into that Janus faced entity again, 531 Lafayette Place, 544 Camp Street. Who was Guy Bannister? Why is it so strange for Lee Harvey Oswald to be having his fair play for Cuban mm-hmm. literature stamped at Guy Bannister's outfit? And uh, there are other people who figure prominently there, notably David Ferry. So uh, 544 Camp Street, 531 Lafayette Place, truly a social a uh, hub of major proportions in New Orleans at mm-hmm. that time. And if you you can believe it, that flyer is in the Warren Commission. I believe cha- uh, volume 25 or something like that. They put all the good stuff in the back, yes. you know, 24, 25, and 26, thinking nobody would get that far. Okay. You know, and it's pretty dull reading, but some people actually did get that far. So you have this flyer, this Corliss Lamont flyer. All right. Uh, the crime against Cuba stamped L.H. Oswald, 544 Camp Street, New Orleans. Okay. Now I can just see Guy Bannister going crazy. Okay. When, when he sees it. And by the way, according to his secretary, you know, he did complain about this very bitterly. How's this going to look? You know, with my address on his flyer. Okay. You know, and so Guy Bannister, had worked for the FBI for a number of years. He had risen to the uh, agent in charge in Chicago, right? And then he decided that um, he would move to the to the south, and he became part of the so-called uh, um, ombudsman, sort of for the New Orleans Police Department. And he was appointed to that by, I think, Shep Morrison, or he was the mayor at that time. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, he got into a fight at a certain club, okay, in New Orleans, but he was drinking too much. And this got him busted, all right. And so he then 
This is one of the most incredible metamorphoses. He then decided to go kind of underground, and he became a kind of contact point in New Orleans for all of these right-wing intelligence-related activities, all right? And he became one of the most plugged-in people as to what was really going on in that city in the late 50s and the early 60s. Guy Bannister was so right-wing, all right, that, I mean, it, it would make your head spin. Okay, this guy was friends with the American Nazi Party leader, who you named already, okay? Uh, he, according to the people who worked there, he was very close to the FBI, even though he had been, uh, he left the FBI, and he was also plugged in with the CIA, there's many people who say that he was a kind of, uh, let's say, a warehouse, okay, for both the Bay of Pigs and Operation Mongoose, all right? He also was very anti-integration, okay? He kept files on that also. And so this whole thing that to have a alleged Marxist to somehow have his address on his flyers was a dead giveaway as to who Oswald really was. All right. If, if you can believe it, none of the first generation books that is by Sylvia Marr or Mark Lane or Harold Weisberg or Ting Thompson, uh, none of those books mention this, this dichotomy. It wasn't brought up till Jim Garrison brought it up in 1967, all right? And so in the 19, I think it was 1980, Anthony Summers was going to interview Delphine Roberts, who was um, his secretary. And also they were supposed to have a romantic interest also, all right? And he met her at, he said, some really crazy John Birch Society lawyer, his office, okay? And the lawyer advised her not to talk to him, okay? So they both left. Summers went around back to pick up his rental car, all right? And it started to rain. Like, it, like if you live in New Orleans or you go there a lot, it rains almost every afternoon, all right? And so he... He saw her standing out in front of the lawyer's office with her umbrella. And so he offered her a ride. Okay. So he said after a couple of minutes, she put her hands up to her face and started crying. Okay. And she said words of the effect. Why do I still have to cover all this stuff up? And so that was the beginning of her pouring out this story, you know, which we didn't know this because of the classified documents, but she had actually said this, a lot of it to the House Select Committee. Not everything she told Summers, it was a little bit more with Summers, but a lot of it was told to the House in secret, okay? And those files weren't released. She said that Oswald came in to Bannister's office. They went behind closed doors, okay, for a few minutes, and it ended up that Oswald was given a small office in that building, okay? And this is where he did a lot of his publishing, okay, and, and putting together these flyers. And not only did she see this, but her daughter saw it also, okay? All right? And so what happened in New Orleans was, I believe, a two-stage operation, is that you had Oswald going undercover in the first part, planting these pamphlets at local colleges, okay, like Tulane, for example, trying to smoke out left-wingers, okay? And then in about August, he breaks out of this undercover thing, and he suddenly, out of the blue, he starts going public, okay, you know? And he, and by the way, he caught uh, the amount of pictures and films that were made of all this lowly, 
you know, derelict, you know, <laughs> who, who all he was doing was, you know, like leafleting. This is almost unbelievable, all the pictures and films we have. And then, of course, I don't have to tell you, Dave, it's that stuff that gets broadcast on November, the, no, the evening of November the 22nd, 1963, thus incriminating Oswald as something he was not, which was a communist and a, and a Castro backer. All right. Now, unfortunately, it took about 18 years for us to put this together. You know, and we're still putting it together today. Uh, Jefferson Morley played some of these films. Uh, when he did, when they did that press conference the other day at the Washington Press Club, or that got on the news that night, everybody swallowed this, you know, hook, line, and sinker. Oh yeah, very clever plot. And Oswald didn't figure it out until late that afternoon, when he said, "I'm just a patsy." Okay. <laughs> It's interesting, Jim and Paul, uh, back in the, in the early 2008, I interviewed Paris Flamon, who was an early researcher on the uh, Garrison case, and who spoke very well of you, by the way. And uh, he had been the producer of the Long John Neville show in New York City. That was uh, arguably the... Uh, the template upon which all uh, talk shows have been uh, planted ever since. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald recorded that famous interview with WDSU in August of 1953, and according to Paris Flamond, he had also called and had wanted to be a guest on uh, the Long John Neville show, which would have given him uh, much greater publicity. And this, again, for someone whose legend, the uh, superficial uh, personality created by the intelligence community was of a, quote, leftist or Marxist, and in fact, nothing that he did was consistent with that. So uh, he was looking to uh, expand his uh, Fair Play for Cuba committee gravitas uh, right before the assassination. When, when when I when I talked to Paris Flamand back in the nineties for my first book, which I don't want to talk about, but anyway, uh I, I said, Where the hell did you get all this stuff that's in this book? And he said, Well, I just subscribed to both of the newspapers and I went down there and I said, Well, how long did you stay down there? And he said, Ten days. I go, You only stayed down there ten days and you have all this he goes, This is what he told me. He says, Jim Towards the end, Garrison was calling me every week. I said, really? He goes, yeah, every Sunday night, you know, he oh would call God. me and then and, and talk about everything. Because, of course, Garrison didn't want to talk to the mainstream media anymore because they had done such a hatchet job on him. Okay. So he knew he could trust Paris Lamont. And that's how Paris got a lot of this information, by the way. If I can chime in on a, on one key point, because Jim brings up the, you know, I mean, the uh, incredible idea of choosing 544 Camp Street. I mean, not only was Guy Bannister and David Ferry a stone's throw away, uh, but I mean, you had the intelligence community uh, all around the block, you know, that you had the Secret Service, you had the CIA and the FBI. But something worth mentioning, I think, is... After uh, the missile crisis a year earlier, the Fair Play for Cuba committee was no longer, you know, the the, the best show in town. I mean, they were dwindling. Uh, the um, There's a number of sources on this. One is a guy called Van Goss, where the boys are, and Barry Shepard, who was a higher up for the Socialist Workers Party, who sponsored and helped manage the Fair Play for Cuba committee. That summer, they had taken the decision that the uh, Fair Play for Cuba committee would exist on paper only. Now, at its heyday, the number of members they had, the highest number of members they had, according to some estimates, was about 7,000. And that would have been around the Bay of Pigs period. But landed at the summer of 1963, this was a dead organization. It was, you know, it was just on, uh, I mean, they were down to 1,500 members 
uh, uh, countrywide. Now, over and above that, uh, membership was ridiculous in a city like New Orleans. I mean, this was a city that depended on north-south south trade. They weren't Castro backers. I mean, uh, he wasn't conducive to protecting their supply lines or their markets in New Orleans. So uh, I often compared it. I mean, uh, you know, distributing Fair Play for Cuba committee flyers back then must have been a bit, would have been like distributing Fair Play for Al-Qaeda after 9-11 <laughs> in New York. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it just didn't make any sense. But another key point was the occupants. This, this I found, uh, Jim, in the garrison files. The occupants of the floor he was on was uh, an organization organized by a coalition of anti-Castro, uh, you know, uh, business people and Cubans. And it was called the Crusade to Free Cuba. And he provides us, I mean, talking about Garrison, with quite the list. And when you look at the list, you have people like, uh, and it's in one of the articles, you have the uh, guy called Winter, William Monteleone, okay, who owned a hotel. You have William Walsh. You have uh, Robert D. Riley on that list. And there, the, so all these, um, you know, residents from New Orleans are linking with other people. You see all the Cuban exiles there, including Ernesto Rodriguez, mm-hmm. who, uh, uh, who, uh, Robert yeah. Riley was head of the Riley Coffee Company, one of Oswald's employers in New Orleans. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But then you have Ernesto Rodriguez in there, who uh, is the poison who pointed Oswald to Carlos Bringier, who ran that uh, language school and who is so linked. He, his father and son, uh, uh, his fa- uh, sorry, he, he, yeah, his father and his brother are so linked to the CIA. It's ridiculous. Uh, you see, you have a, someone called Ronnie Kerr. Ronnie Kerr knew Clay Shaw. Well, Ronnie Kerr is also someone where Oswald went and applied for work. Okay. And uh, the links there are absolutely amazing. What you're seeing is Oswald's real network. Uh, and his Paul, real we ne- almost, We're almost out of time here. What I'd like to do would be to wrap this off, give some credits, and then let's recap what you just set forth for the audience about the people who were in this okay. anti-Casco uh, network. Because this, this is an important uh, piece of background information against which the Oswald legend needs to be discussed. Uh, I want to uh, take note of the fact that I'm doing three one-hour interviews for Patreon every week and periodic Zoom guest appearances by authors. And uh, Jim Eugenio, you uh, do a website, Kennedys and King. Tell us about that, Black Ops Radio, and where we can get the book featuring yours, Gary Aguilar's, and Paul's contributions, among others. Yes, KennedysandKing.com is my website. A lot of interesting articles with, written by people like Paul. I'm a semi-regular on Leno Sanic's show out of Vancouver, Black Op Radio. I'm the author of JFK Revisited, okay, Through the Looking Glass, which is kind of the, the accompanying book to the documentary. It has the scripts in it for the long and short version and excerpts from many interviews with people like Paul. And the DVD of this thing is back in the top ten again. This is amazing. This documentary was released in July. This is December. And it's still in the top ten. for. So that's about four months. Okay, so get the book. Buy it for, uh, you know, your loved ones or your friends. And then buy the documentary for yourself. Okay. And there are two and four-hour presentations in the documentary. And uh, on kennedysandking.com, some of the essays that are available uh, from Paul Blow, uh, the prior plots we talked about to kill JFK, uh, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee will speak about that. Oswald's Escort, that's something I wanted to bring up in another interview to follow. Oswald's Intelligence Connections, the Cuban Exile Mafia CIA Network, the Investigations and Investigators, 
who confirmed there was uh, a conspiracy. Oliver Stone and Quebec City, Oswald's last letter, a cornucopia of information from, although available, uh, among other places on Kennedy's and King.com, as well as in the documentary. This concludes for the record program number 1275. Interview number 14 with Jim Eugenio and Paul Blow about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on December 9th of the year 2022. For Jim Eugenio and Paul Blow, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.